0: This is After Immunity, a UMFM limited series that aims to explore the questions surrounding what our individual and collective worlds will look like after we've gained immunity to COVID-19. Today on our final episode, we are looking at the next pandemic after immunity. Join us as we talk with Dr. Alan Detsky, physician and professor of health policy management and evaluation at the University of Toronto and former physician in chief at Mount Sinai Hospital, and Dr. Charlotte Hammer, a field epidemiologist at the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control. In these last few months, we have been a part of history. The events of the COVID-19 pandemic have had an effect on almost every aspect of our lives. Who we see and how we see them. How we purchase goods and services, how we work at our jobs, and how we receive an education, just to name a few of them. At large, we have seen governments falter, institutions questioned, scientific breakthroughs, and continued divisions over our concepts of liberty and the social contract. To date, there have been over 3.8 million deaths because of this pandemic. As grim as this sounds, There seems to be some light at the end of the tunnel. As more people get vaccinated, we have seen less cases of the virus and restrictions have thus eased. Events have been taking place down in the States. Just last week in Canada, Ontario entered step one of reopening, using non-essential retail operations and restaurant dining. I personally have witnessed some of the most hesitant individuals out on patios, enjoying a drink and seeing old friends for the first time in a long time. This series has explored a few of the elements of our future as we lift restrictions and return to a quote-unquote normal world. How might inequities be exacerbated because of the events of the pandemic? How is our local arts scene transformed? How might we address short-term and long-term mental health impacts? And how might our cities and businesses change? Having explored how these elements may evolve in our post-COVID-19 world, today we are examining the next pandemic. That's right. Given the events that have unfolded, how might we prepare for the next pandemic? The next one. What lessons have we learned from the COVID-19 pandemic? And what insurance and risk mitigation policies should governments be putting in place? Indeed, some of these questions are being addressed in real time. For instance, on June 13th, the G7 in the Carbus Bay Declaration agreed that, quote, in the event of a future pandemic, we will seek to create an adequate framework to have safe and effective vaccines, therapeutics, and diagnostics available within 100 days. Earlier this year, we reached out to two experts with two distinct perspectives on this topic, the next pandemic. Interestingly, history is reflected in these interviews, that is, some of the conversation reflects what was going on in the world at the time in late winter, early spring of this year. At that time, vaccine nationalism dominated, and none of us knew about the events like the Carbis Bay Declaration, the issues surrounding AstraZeneca, nor the recent renewed investigations into the origins of COVID-19. Thus, even conversations on seemingly long-term notions like the next pandemic are not static. To begin this conversation on the next pandemic, however, we first look back to a past major infectious disease scare. In 2002-2003, Canada was faced with an outbreak of sars cov commonly known simply as SARS. There were 251 suspected infections in Canada, with most cases located in Toronto. On this, myself and one of our associate producers, Jonah Kotzer, who's on this interview, reached out to Dr. Alan Detsky. Dr. Detsky is a physician and professor of health policy management and evaluation at the University of Toronto. A member of the Order of Canada, he was the physician in chief at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto during the SARS outbreak of 2003. He was also interviewed on Netflix's Explained series for an episode examining the next pandemic. Released in October 2019, the episode was eerily accurate in its prediction of the COVID 19 virus and the pandemic. Dr. Detsky, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, my pleasure. I think a really helpful way to kind of kick us off is if you might be able to kind of explain to the listeners what your role was and your kind of experiences during the SARS epidemic in Toronto in the early 2000s.
1: I had three roles. First, I was the physician-in-chief at Mount Sinai Hospital and we had a merged practice plan for the Department of Medicine with the University Health Network, so I was I and my partner Michael Baker, uh, who was the chief at UHN, and I ran the Department of Medicine for what was essentially four hospitals: Toronto General, Toronto Western, Princess Margaret, and Mount Sinai Hospital. So we had over 250 doctors, we had uh, hundreds of medical beds, and we took care of patients in both critical care and uh, internal medicine wards during the SARS epidemic. So that was my primary role; that was my day job. Secondly, we had a one hour conference call and we had all of the hospitals in Ontario got on the line for a a phone call. And so that call took place every day for an hour and I became the chair of that call. So I fielded the call and it was, it was, there was no agenda. It was like, what's going on and what's happening clinically, resource wise, uh, psychologically, like what's it like? And then my third role was to coordinate the study that described the clinical course of the patients in Toronto who had SARS. And I, with many of the doctors in those hospitals, we wrote up the clinical description of all of the cases in the first wave of SARS. So there was really three roles, running a department of medicine, chairing these hourly calls, and writing up the clinical description.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a really helpful place just to kind of let us and the viewers know just how expansive your role was during this outbreak. Jonah, you have the next question? Upon hearing the news about the virus coming out of Wuhan, what was your reaction? When did you first see COVID-19 becoming a global pandemic or, you know, a problem on the global scale?
1: 2003 was my first experience with a scary infectious disease that could spread nosocomially, which means spread primarily in healthcare centers. And I had never experienced anything like that. There had been other pandemics in my lifetime. I think there was one in 1967, pandemics, but they were never really, they didn't have much of an impact on me. So SARS was my first experience with that. And that was quite, quite scary. And then the next experience that was kind of like that was 2009 with the H1N1. And I would have to say that when that happened, I was was like, oh, here we go again. And I found that to be a little frightening as well, but that turned out not to be a problem at all. We we vaccinated people, they guessed on the right vaccine and we were able to distribute that vaccination strategy easily. It was a much easier vaccine than the one we have now for SARS-CoV-2. And uh, we got through that. So by the time we hit, December 2019. I was like, okay, been there, done that. It's not Ebola. It's not SARS-1, which had a 10% mortality. I was like, you know, bring it on. And I would say, you know, we, we heard reports in the news. We heard reports in the medical literature. But one of my bell marks was um, an old friend of mine who I went to medical school with, who's an infectious disease physician in Boston. And she started to call me. Now, this is somebody I never hear from. So she called me like three or four, one day she called me three times because she was so anxious. So I was like, if she's nervous, I wonder what this is going to look like. And for a while we thought it might be contained in China. I learned lots of things from SARS-1, one of which is you can't really, you shouldn't rely on reports in the news about what's really going on halfway around the world. I couldn't even figure out what was going on at Mount Sinai Hospital during SARS. So figuring out from news reports, who talked to who in China, like, I didn't even know where Wuhan was. So I just kind of absorbed that information. But it became pretty clear in January, that even though China, which is very good at handling outbreaks, that they had not handled this one in a way that kept it within China. So we started to hear reports of lots of illness in Iran, then in Italy. And and it became clear at that point that this was like, This is the wind, and you can't stop the wind. So I would say that in January and February, it was pretty clear to me that this was going to be widespread. And then there was a frustrating period where nobody was paying attention. Like the man from the WHO, Tedros, was on the news every night screaming at us, this is a state of emergency, this is a state of emergency. And you had people like Donald Trump saying, it's three cases, it's going to go away by April. And Doug Ford telling people as recently as March, I can remember the exact date, it was the week of March the 12th, he was telling people to go on spring break and not to worry about it. And so that was disconcerting because Mm -hmm. I I knew that was wrong. And that was when it was clear to me that uh, we were going to have a lot of trouble in Ontario and in Canada.
0: You wrote a piece kind of right around that time, around the March 2020, for the Journal of Hospital Medicine on what you learned from SARS to help you cope with what was then becoming the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you describe how the pandemic that we're currently facing with COVID-19, how is that different when we compare that to the SARS outbreak in 2003? What are the similarities and differences with these two events?
1: The similarities are they're both coronaviruses, The differences are that there's way more asymptomatic spread with SARS-CoV-2 than with SARS-CoV-1. With SARS-CoV-1, we had no test for it. So it was all phenomenological. You were described as a case or not based on the constellation of symptoms, fever, cough, pulmonary infiltrate. There was no test. We eventually did get a test, but that was after the thing was over. SARS had a 10% mortality rate, which was way higher. Mm -hmm. And SARS really only occurred in two places, in hospitals and in super spreader places. So there was the famous hotel in Hong Kong where the physician from China came down and spread it to a bunch of people who then took it to cities, one of which was Toronto. There was the son of the woman who came from Hong Kong who who got infected from his mother who went into the Scarborough Grace he was a super spreader. There were only, there were small number of events where the virus clearly became airborne and infected a lot of people, but that was rare. That virus was mostly not that infectious until it wasn't. But the number of times that it wasn't was very small. And so it was much easier to use the old fashioned methods of testing. Well, in that case, we didn't have a test, but of contact tracing and quarantining, it was easier to get around. The other thing is During SARS, the hospital was completely bizarre. We went in, we got checked, a temperature check, a questionnaire, put on an N95 mask, wore the N95 mask the whole time you were in the hospital, put on a new set of protective gear for every single patient that we saw, including N95 masks. There was no worry about running out because we were the only city in North America that that had an outbreak. So inside the hospital looked very weird. And then as soon as I go out of the hospital, it looked completely normal. Like there was nothing different. People were, I went to a bat mitzvah. I wouldn't go near anyone, but I went to a bat I I went to a leaf playoff game.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like you can't imagine doing that now. So mm-hmm. it, that part was also quite different. The other thing was it was quite new. And so it was scarier because it was much more unknown. This, because it's lasted longer with the, With old COVID, old SARS-CoV-2, we know how it spread. We know that farther is better than closer. Outdoor is better than indoor. Masked is better than not masked. Get yourself tested, if even randomly. And we have a set of procedures that we know limits transmission, mitigates transmission. With the variants of concern, the new variants, that's all gone now. So we have examples of apartment buildings, just like the apartment building in Hong Kong, where the first SARS got into the ventilation system and Mm -hmm. infected everybody. We have two in Ontario, two apartment buildings where there's been spread from people who weren't in contact with each other. So we're back to square one now. I'm not saying it's exactly like SARS-1, but SARS-CoV-2 up until the recent variants, we could definitely understand how it's transmitted. And we have a test for it. We didn't have that the first time.
0: Mm-hmm. That, that was very helpful just to kind of characterize, again, the differences between what is Canada specifically kind of just Toronto faced in terms of infectious diseases more recently and what the whole country and the whole world is kind of undergoing right now with the COVID-19 pandemic. Of course, today, we're wanting to talk a little bit about you know that future-oriented post-COVID-19 world and more specifically, the next pandemic. The next pandemic is not a matter of if, but when. I think that your experience with was that that Netflix show really exemplified that, just saying that it will happen. It's just a matter of when. You're an expert in this. You've experienced this. When do you see the next pandemic coming along?
1: Beats me. <laughs> Sometime in the future. Okay. Um, the, you know, pandemics occur, if, if you look over the last century, I'd have to go back and exactly count them up, but there's been more than three. Mm-hmm. So, you know, more than three in a hundred years, so that's like every 30 years, but it's, it's actually more frequent than every, every 30 years. So they do occur, but they, but you have to understand that the word pandemic itself is not scary. You can have an infection that circulates around the world that infects a lot of people that doesn't kill a lot of people, or you can have an infection that gets around the world, but is inefficient. So it runs out of substrate to, to infect. So the pandemic by itself simply means an infection that goes all the way around the world. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to wreak havoc. On healthcare or the economy, like this one. This one is different. This is much more like the influenza pandemic of of 1918 to 1920. The ones in between were not like this, but in my lifetime, probably the scariest, I'm not sure that it was called a pandemic, but the scariest infectious disease outbreak was polio in the 1950s, which was also episodic. It didn't, polio wasn't always there, It, it, it was an endemic. Virus, but some years it would be bad, other years it wouldn't be bad. Or in 2003, we had a double whammy. We had SARS, and then we had West Nile outbreaks Mm -hmm. in Ontario, in Eastern Canada, and uh, Northeastern United States. So we had two infectious diseases. This is the nature, like we live on a planet with a bunch of things that they don't have brains. Viruses don't have brains, they just have evolution. Mm -hmm. And they They live to find things that they can infect, and then when they infect those things, they multiply, and the ones that are more likely to multiply, the mutation versions that are more likely to multiply, win out, and it's like watching the evolution of mankind, but compressed into a very short period of time.
0: Mm -hmm. I appreciate your honesty in saying you don't know when the next one's going to hit. I I guess... What I'd be curious to know and get your thoughts on, because I think I I understand where you're going in the sense of, you know, pandemics, infectious diseases are always occurring. And if that's the case, do you anticipate the next sort of pandemic or a situation where where you have these mutations of a virus? Do you think that they're just not going to be of the same scale as what we're currently undergoing with the COVID-19 pandemic?
1: They'll probably be bigger. Uh, I mean, the mm-hmm. world is much more connected now than it was in, in 1918. So, you know, this, is, this isn't answering the question directly, but it, but it does answer the question. The world is not going to be safe from this virus until everyone is safe from this virus. So we could stamp it all out in North America, but if it festers in Asia, it'll get here. Quickly, mm-hmm. If it festers in a, in a mutated form in, a, in Asia, it'll, it'll get here quickly. So we have way more mobility now than we did. The last year, not so much, but before that. So whatever is going to happen will probably be bigger. It'll, it'll be easier for viruses to sweep around the world than before.
0: So, so I'd just like to get your thoughts on kind of the lessons that we've hopefully tried to learn, you know, probably over the last year or so of being in the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you have any sort of lessons? Do you think that we could kind of take away from what we've undergone in the last couple months and what might be applicable for that next pandemic?
1: Well, we're not going to learn those lessons. I'm okay. going to start with that because we haven't learned them now. So you can contrast countries like Taiwan. Taiwan is a country, I'm not sure how many people live there, but I'm going to guess it's about the population of Canada. It's on a tiny little island, but they have a lot of people that live there. It has a healthcare system that it was modeled on the Canadian healthcare system. It's exactly like our system, but it's right next to China. Mm -hmm. So it knows that whatever's going on in China is gonna infect it in every way. I I don't just mean germs, but anything that's going on in China is gonna have an effect or an infect on Taiwan. So after SARS, and Taiwan was one of the places where they had a SARS outbreak, they got serious. They developed technological infrastructure and communication infrastructure to rapidly mobilize communication systems so that testing and tracing could be done instantaneously. Now, they didn't turn them all on, but they got the the platforms ready. Mm -hmm. They rapidly were able to turn that on at the beginning of uh, this pandemic because they had laid the groundwork. They had laid the groundwork in public health. They had laid the groundwork legislatively, and they had dealt with issues like privacy laws. And so they could rapidly isolate themselves, stop people at the border, test them isolate them make sure they didn't get into their community and you can imagine it was it's much harder to it's much sorry easier to infect taiwan than canada it's tiny mm-hmm. geographically there's only certain areas that are remote so it's it would be simple for a virus looking around saying where am i going to go i'm going to go there because they got a lot of people on a small island and it's really close to china and how many deaths have they had in taiwan since the beginning of the I don't even think it's a thousand. So now the other difference, I do believe that there are a difference in Asian cultures and North American cultures in terms of things like social responsibility, following government rules, adherence to public health strategies. So things like masks are very common in the East and they're very foreign here. So it's not uncommon to see, to go to an Asian country, to Korea or, or Japan and see people wearing masks. That's, that wasn't too much of a stretch for them. That was easier for them to get mm-hmm. across than here. Here it felt very awkward to wear masks until it became common. So we were slow to do that. And then you look at countries like Australia and New Zealand, yeah, they're islands. They, they don't have this long border with the United States that has an interdependent economy with lots of goods and services crossing the border by truck, people coming in, going out, coming in, going out. They don't have that. It all arrives by plane. It's easier to to control, but they controlled it. So, And, and you know what? That's a Western culture too. And I don't think Australians and New Zealanders are any more adherent to public health strategies than Canadians. They seem to be... I've been there. I mean, you know, I wouldn't call myself an expert on Australian and New Zealand cultures, mm-hmm. but looks pretty much like Canada to me. Uh, in fact, New Zealand—I call New Zealand Canada light. They've got the Rockies. They, they got the tropics. Like, there's a lot more packed into there than it's like all of Canada plus the tropics. So it's—it's it's not as if other countries couldn't figure out how to do this, mm-hmm. um, and we didn't figure out how to do this in Canada, and we didn't because we didn't listen to the the, the people in charge. Didn't listen to the messages. Early on in Ontario, I would say that the premier, who is in charge, got the message. Early on is the wrong word. March. It was right around spring break. And that was a turning point from not taking it seriously to taking it seriously. But then if you look at everything that they've done since then, it's kind of muddled its way through. Testing strategy should have been ramped up in the summer. And I know that plans were delivered to the government to ramp up testing that they didn't do it the many people have been critical of the provincial public health leadership. Lots of people pointedly gave the premier excellent advice about how to do it better. Didn't do it. The strategies for testing, tracing, quarantining and supporting workers in Peel. Lots of advice about how to do that. Didn't do it. So if we can't do this in the middle of what is obviously a crisis, how the fuck do you think we're gonna do this 10 years from now?
0: I think you kind of touched upon this a little bit, but following all this with the COVID-19 pandemic, what, what do you think the role of the federal and provincial governments should be in preparing for the next large scale pandemic of this nature? Uh, you know, What should they be investing in regarding risk mitigation uh, and, and what kind of policies should they be pursuing
1: post COVID-19? After SARS, there were national commissions and there were Ontario commissions on how to do it better. David Naylor chaired, I believe the national commission. There was a whole playbook. United States had a whole playbook. All you have to do is follow the playbook. It's not more complicated than that. But understand three things. This might turn into four things. Number one, it's a lot of work. Like during SARS, every day was a lot of work for me because I didn't know what was going to happen on a daily basis. We had a certain number of patients that we had to look after and a certain number of nurses and doctors and other healthcare professionals. And I didn't know on any given day whether an entire ward was going to be wiped out of its healthcare workers because they were exposed to somebody who had SARS. So, public health, old fashioned testing, tracing, supporting, quarantining is work, you can't just say it. So you have to be prepared to invest in it and you have to understand that it's a lot of work. It's not complicated work, but it's a lot of work that turns into complications because getting from here to there is not that easy. Getting from A to B is not that easy. There's a lot of people that have to be contacted. So that's issue number one. Jonah, just remind me what your question was again, because I already got lost it. No, no worries. Uh, the questions were um, investments post-COVID-19 oh, and yeah. What, 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 what do we have to do post-COVID-19? Okay, so the first thing is create a, a plan and understand that it's a lot of work and that you're going to have to have a baseline level of competence. And then you're going to, it's like peak load phenomenon. You're going to have to, you're going to have to raise the bar when the events occur. So that's issue number one. Issue number two is to begin to think about how nationalism intervenes in a crisis. So we're a small country and we have a small market. And so in the non-heat of the moment, when it's cold, the idea of creating capacity inside the country for things that, that are going to, you're going to require to handle a pandemic like protective equipment, like vaccines, like syringes, like swabs. If you are dependent on international trade for fixed factors of production that are required to fight a pandemic, you're gonna be at the mercy of nationalism. We've, we see that now with vaccine strategy. There's a plant in Kalamazoo, Michigan. You can practically see it from Sarnia. They make a vaccine. Where are we getting our vaccine from? Belgium, from the same company. So understanding, and in hindsight, it's easy to see this, but now we've got foresight. So understanding what are the fixed factors of production for fighting a pandemic? Where are we going to be vulnerable to nationalism? And investing in that, over-investing in that will pay off. We can be a net exporter of that instead of a net importer of that. Now, I do not pretend to understand what it takes to create a vaccine industry in the country. And I I hear from news stories that this was certainly discussed a year ago when the pandemic began, whether Canada should establish lines of procurement through international trade or local production. And there was an attempt to do a local production that that ill-fated partnership with China. I mean, as we say in Yiddish Hakimira, China, like why would you be partnering with China when we can't even get the two Michaels out of China, like, what was the thinking there? So, but that's easy to say now that that didn't work out. But we're looking at the future. So it's understanding where you're going to be vulnerable to nationalism that is important. And then the third thing is politics is short term, people get elected on short term strategies. So you can even look at what's going on in Texas now with the electricity infrastructure and understand how short-termism ended up doing that. I remember well the controversy around energy in in Ontario and how different governments of different parties kicked it all down the road and I wonder, gee, how vulnerable are we in Ontario? So governments have to understand that there are certain things you can't kick down the road and maybe this is one of them, but I am quite certain that human nature is such that when it's out of sight, it's out of mind. If you're not experiencing something directly, it doesn't exist. So when COVID was in China, that's China. When it was in Iran, it's Iran. When it was in Italy, it's Italy, it's across the ocean. When it's in New York, it's not even in Canada. People here did not take it seriously until it's right in front of them. And even then sometimes it, so that phenomenon, and that's now, that's in the middle of it. So thinking about this, if we don't have another pandemic for 10 years, governments are gonna forget, and they're gonna say, why should I be spending money on this shit? Like what's with these these N95 masks stockpiled? Like, what do we need this for? That's so 2003. Like that. that kind of thinking is going to be normal. And then I guess the last phenomenon is, we saw this in SARS, we gave up too early in Toronto. We thought it was all over because we wanted it to be all over. And the psychology of wanting something to not be as opposed to looking and seeing whether it is, is a common phenomenon. The premier was dying for good reasons to lift restrictions in Toronto and Peel as the numbers go down. And it took a lot of voices screaming in his face To say you better take these variants seriously because this would be the wrong move and i'm not blaming the premier for that like my comments about the premier are he was a label manufacturer nobody expects him to know how to run a pandemic i wouldn't expect him to be able to figure this out i'm a bit disappointed that he hasn't recruited the people who i think could help him do it but if something's not in your face you don't think it's real and you people have a tendency to want something to be true when it's not.
0: Dr. Desky, we're, we're very appreciative of your time as well as your blunt and honest perspective on a lot of these questions and what we know, what we don't know, and what we probably could have done better with this pandemic. With all of these thoughts in mind, I'd be curious, what do you see the legacy of the COVID-19 pandemic being as we enter that post-pandemic world?
1: Two things. We muddled through in Canada. We muddled through. Mm -hmm. We didn't do a terrible job, but we didn't do a very good job. We muddled through. Number two, it looks like our ass is going to be saved by science. Because without the vaccine, we would be, as we say in Yiddish, fucked.
0: (laughs) I think they say that in a lot of languages, actually. We would be...
1: Um... The, the, the miracle, see, viruses don't have brains, we have brains, but we have behaviors that allow the viruses to take advantage of us. And those behaviors are that we can't we, just can't, we just can't not be with each other. Like this whole thing would stop if every single person in the world would stay away from every other person in the world for 14 days, it would be over, but we can't do that. Human behaviors won't allow us to do that. But what we do have is brains and vaccines, like it is a miracle that these vaccines were developed and produced in less than a year. My prediction in the fall was that we would know about one or two vaccines by December and that it would probably be about 60 to 70% effective at reducing the risk of getting serious COVID infection. We had people being vaccinated in December, not just knowing that the not having a phase three trial result, but phase three trial result approval by the federal government authorities, manufacturer shipping it here from Belgium. And I think some of it came from Louisville, but it was Belgium stuff. And we had it in arms in December. We were, we were vaccinating healthcare workers and uh, long term care workers in December. That's a fucking miracle. The fact that we're behind now is really a wrinkle on that because if we had not, if science had not developed this, we would be up Schitt's Creek, to use a Canadian expression. So the two things are we muddled through and we were saved by science. Dr. Detsky, thank you so much for joining us today. As well as someone who remembers living through SARS here in Toronto, uh, I want to thank you for your public service and all your help in keeping our city safe. So thank you again for joining us and thank you for all your hard work.
0: That was Human Music with the track Tea Leaves from their 2018 self-titled release. Welcome back to After Immunity, a limited series that explores our questions surrounding the post-COVID-19 world. Today on our last episode, we are examining the next pandemic, After Immunity. Dr. Detsky shared some unique thoughts and comparisons related to his past experience with the 2003 SARS outbreak in Toronto. It was interesting to hear his thoughts on how Canada and Ontario performed in relation to other jurisdictions, the nexus with nationalism and politics, as well as how the next pandemic may be bigger given how connected society is. Indeed, pandemics are a global issue requiring global cooperation. Continuing our discussion, we now examine a bit more of a macro and risk-based perspective to understand the next pandemic. That is, what were some of the factors that drove this pandemic and how did we as a global society do in terms of mitigating those risks? What early signs should we look for in the next pandemic? And what roles do international institutions play in this regard? To address some of these questions. We reached out to Dr. Charlotte Hammer back in early February. Dr. Charlotte Hammer is an emergency public health and infectious diseases epidemiologist. She is a fellow with the European Programme for Intervention Epidemiology Training at the European Centre for Diseases Prevention and Control, as well as a research affiliate with the University of Cambridge's Centre for the Study of Existential Risk. Her specialty is in contextual factors that drive outbreak risk, particularly of emerging zoonotic diseases. Dr. Hammer, thank you for joining us.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
0: So I think a helpful place to kind of kick us off here is understanding where the COVID-19 pandemic kind of sits within the broader context of the history of pandemics. This obviously is not humanity's first pandemic. It's not our first rodeo. So how do we compare the COVID-19 pandemic from previous pandemics over history?
2: Now, this one is actually really difficult to answer. So in a way, every pandemic is different. And for full disclosure, I'm not a historian of pandemics. There are a couple of really great people working on these kinds of issues. Names like Sven-Erik Mamelund at Oslo Metropolitan University came to mind. And they specialize in studying historic pandemics, and including the lessons learned for today and for the future. But what I can say is that obviously you could argue that modern society is interconnected in ways that are pretty much incomparable with historic epidemics and pandemics like the 1918 to 1919 influenza pandemic, which we commonly refer to as the Spanish flu. However, what we've seen over the last year is that most of the advice, if not the science behind the advice, is pretty similar to 100 years ago. What worked then works now. Things like social distancing, like masks wearing, like bans on mask gatherings.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And in general, really, the majority of our experience is with pandemic influenza. But obviously, both being respiratory diseases, there is some overlap with COVID-19. And obviously, we had sars Mark one in 2003. But while that had a very severe impact on the countries affected, it was really at a different scale than what we're experiencing right now
0: hmm So I guess you could say the COVID-19 pandemic, as you said, the solutions were more or less kind of similar. You know, you have a respiratory disease, but it's kind of the scale that seems to compare it from at least the more recent pandemics. Would that be a fair characterization?
2: I would definitely say so. We've seen a few flu pandemics over the last century, but none of them have these large-scale societal impacts that we're seeing now.
0: Mm-hmm. And I want to get into that. I want to get into those societal impacts. And, and you specialize in kind of understanding larger contextual factors of infectious disease risks. What were some of the factors that drove this pandemic? And, and obviously the pandemic still happened, but how would you kind of, how did we as a global society do in terms of, of mitigating that risk?
2: Absolutely. So actually, a lot of those factors are quite similar across epidemics and pandemics. And it's actually that this emerging infectious disease just happens to be forcing the attention of people in high-income countries. Therefore, we might actually in the future be in a position to tackle the challenge of emerging infectious diseases better than we have in the past. Because in the past, in many cases, large-scale outbreaks, um, say, for example, the 2014 to 2016 Ebola outbreak in West Africa, have happened in low and middle income countries. And a lot of times the attention from high income countries has been mostly in keeping the diseases over there rather than having them come to us. Mm -hmm. And maybe this now is the wake up call that we need in terms of infectious diseases being a threat to everyone everywhere and being a challenge that we can only tackle and hopefully eventually overcome altogether. However, when we look at the current management, especially in terms of vaccine availability, there's a rather bleak picture where vaccine nationalism seems to be the strategy of the day rather than global solidarity. Mm -hmm. But really nobody is safe until everybody is safe. And that is a lesson that we clearly still have to learn.
0: I'm glad you kind of brought up that vaccine nationalism because I think that's something that's that's hitting home here, at least in Canada, in terms of our own lack of being able to manufacture the vaccine, you know, in Canada and being kind of dependent on on other countries. But those countries are now kind of saying, "Wait a minute, we need to kind of take care of our own." And I think the aspect, especially in developing countries, is is precisely that. Developed countries are focusing on their themselves and and not really thinking of about the developing countries. So just kind of circling back a little bit in terms of kind of the factors of this pandemic. Obviously that's where we're placed right now, but in terms of obviously right now, this this idea of the pandemic, it's still, we're still kind of looking at how it got started, right? But do we know any of the factors that drove this pandemic to lead it to this large outbreak that we now are so acutely aware of?
2: Yes and no. So Mm -hmm. most novel infectious diseases originate from animals. One of the papers that is really commonly cited in this context from 2008 is led by Kate Jones at UCL. And it suggested that about 60 to 70 percent of infectious diseases have zoonotic origins. Mm -hmm. So infectious diseases in humans have zoonotic origins. So it is pretty much a given that this pandemic and also very likely that the next pandemic will originate from a so-called zoonotic spillover event. However, on the flip side of that, not all spillover events lead to epidemics, let alone lead to pandemics. Now, colleagues at the University of Cambridge have shown a couple of years ago that, for example, for Ebola, the majority of spillovers leads to less than five cases. Most of them lead to no additional cases whatsoever. So it's clearly not only that zoonotic spillover alone that is driving large epidemics and pandemics like the current one, it's really the depending on the context where the spillover happened and the level of what we call amplification after that so how much additional transmission from human to human is then happening mm-hmm. and that can vary vastly from none at all to a great deal leading to a pandemic now for the current pandemic we do not yet know what those contextual factors are that have led from the spillover to the outbreak, to the pandemic. The WHO task force investigating the origins of SARS-CoV-2 has really only just started its work. And only once we start to investigate and understand these first transmission chains, will we eventually, hopefully be able to pin down um, what has been the first domino for this pandemic. But this is really extremely complex work that will probably take years and it might never lead to a definitive answer. Um, Mm -hmm. In fact, we've spent decades on this with Ebola and we've spent years on it with SARS-1 and with MERS, but some factors are very likely culprits. So if we in general look at spillover born outbreak risk, there are three main mechanisms and reasons why spillover happens. The first is a change in the passage in itself. So say a mutation that makes the jump to humans or to domesticated species or to an intermediary host possible or more likely. Second is changes in the environment, um, with the environment becoming drier or the environment becoming wetter or being colonized by humans, and finally, which is kind of my speciality, the changes in the human-animal interactions, such as land use change, or humans encroaching on animal territories, animals encroaching on human territories, and really it is often a combination of those factors that you see.
0: Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. That was exactly what, what I really wanted to hear in terms of just, you know, what are those kind of on the ground changes that are happening? So I was wondering if you might be able to expand a little bit on that in terms of the land use. And so in something like, like a growing pandemic, and I think of just situations where you're seeing countries really develop, really continue to build large highways, things along this nature, and kind of encroaching on, on the land of that was previously only inhabited by animals. As we see kind of more of that encroachment, do we anticipate we're going to see more pandemics?
2: Well, we'll definitely see more spillover. And then obviously it's a question of amplification, whether we will see more epidemics and pandemics from that. But oftentimes this type of development comes exactly with the risk factors for amplification, such as housing and population density, such as massive amounts of people moving from one area to another, and also things like people with Different previous immunity moving into a new area, mm-hmm. um, so we we have those risks for spillover converging with risks for amplification, and that can in these specific settings make the perfect storm for the next
1: pandemic. Mm-hmm.
0: And I want to talk a little bit about that next pandemic because some people might think that this might be the last pandemic. I don't know who, but but I was wondering if you could kind of explain to the listeners a little bit about why the question is not if, but when the next pandemic will be? Why is it a matter of just when?
2: So first of all, from a logical point of view, pandemics have always been a feature of human life on Earth. I don't really see any reason why we would have now a massive shift that discontinues that trajectory, Mm -hmm. um, especially with those factors actually amplifying the likelihood of pandemics. There are some possibilities to significantly reduce the risks of pandemics originating from zoonotic spillover, which is the most likely source of the next pandemic. But that would require quite a substantial rethink in global health security and also a shift in our societal priorities globally. So novel diseases emerge all the time. So pandemics will happen as well. We've only seen a tiny fraction of the diseases that are expected to be found in wildlife particularly in tropical rainforests. And tropical rainforests are the areas where this encroachment of humans is more and more happening, where we see massive amounts of development at the same time as we're seeing massive amounts of population growth. So really, as long as we exploit nature the way we do right now, we will continue to encounter novel diseases. And that includes the types of animal husbandry and hunting that we're doing, And not only these in this context vilified wet markets that we've been hearing about a lot, sort of in March and April last year, but also things like mass animal husbandry that we're seeing in uh, many high-income countries.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that's a really helpful way of kind of looking at this. Is again, you know, it's the next pandemic will happen, and 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 as you said, we're kind of seeing a little bit more of the contextual factors now being exacerbated to lead to another pandemic. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, in your expertise, on what time frame could we anticipate the next pandemic? Or is that too difficult kind of a question to say at this stage?
2: Well, that is probably so uncertain that it is very <laughs> difficult to say. Right, um, right. I would be quite comfortable saying that I will probably in my lifetime see another pandemic.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: But beyond that, it is not very easy to predict, and I'm not quite the right person to properly predict this as well.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that time frame of saying that you know, for some generations, they will see another pandemic in their in their lifetime. So I, I I think that's a useful place just to kind of obviously it's not saying you know in two to three years or something, but nor would I anticipate that's quite possible.
2: I mean, we we don't know if it will be at this scale, but if I look back, sort of within the timeframe of me being interested in infectious diseases. So say, go back to high school age. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: I have already seen multiple pandemics in that time. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Mm -hmm. what we see now is on a different scale entirely. But we've had H1N1 pandemic influenza. We've had sars Mark one So we've already seen two relatively significant pandemics in the early 2000s.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I want to kind of circle back and talk a little bit about risk mitigation. And we've talked a little bit about the risks that drive a pandemic, potentially drove this pandemic. But I want to kind of talk a little bit about the proactive aspect of this and kind of the supports that might be needed in the future in that post COVID-19 world. In your view, what needs to happen to mitigate or eliminate the risks or the scale, I guess, of the next pandemic? What should governments be investing in terms of those risk mitigation policies in the post-COVID-19 world?
2: So first of all, we need to acknowledge that these types of events will happen again. And we need to keep acknowledging that beyond the current pandemic. Mm -hmm. That means we need sustained funding for organizations that respond to health threats that do research on emerging infectious diseases. We do need some technical solutions such as increased surveillance, but it is very easy to forget that the best mitigation strategies are things like universal health coverage, social equity, environmental protection. We Very often in my field, we see this scientific fascination with finding the virus or the pathogen then with tests and diagnostics and vaccines. But really, the risky contexts are more what we need to be looking at in the long term. And that's not really new. I mean, we've seen the field of emerging infectious diseases is about 40 years old, developed in the context of AIDS initially. And the term emerging infectious disease was actually coined by Stephen Morse, I believe, at a National Institute of Health conference. And back then, it was really this wholesale approach of things having to be tackled economically, environmentally, politically. But it has been kind of taken over from a more exclusively microbiological slant in the last couple of decades. And that obviously changed the agenda towards more technical solutions, which are really only a stopgap measure. We do need these measures, especially on the global scale, especially in the shorter term. But we also need to consider what type of society we want to be in the future. We need to address these large-scale drivers of emerging infectious diseases. And actually, this applies to pandemic prevention as much as it does to, say, climate change. And in fact, mitigating climate change also mitigates future pandemics, as climate change does drastically reduce the amount of livable land for both humans and animals on our planet. And that invariably will lead to increased human wildlife context. However, there's also a positive side to this. Um, so I'm trying to not not to be too doom and gloom here. No, yeah, I appreciate um, that. If we look at the more distant root causes, um, we actually will see that these are the same for many of these immense challenges we are facing in the 21st century. And the solutions also respond to multiple challenges.
0: So from the sounds of it, it sounds... You know, rather than just looking at this as any sort of level of, of, I want to say maybe technocratic exercise a little bit, that purely scientific, you know, leave it to the expert sort of lens, rather than understanding, as you said, where our society should be. And I think it's really interesting to kind of bring that environmental lens into this equation. You know, another global catastrophe we may be facing in our lifetime is, is climate change, as you said. I think that's a really helpful way of kind of framing this issue up and expanding the issue a little larger. You mentioned about, you know, some of these aspects of, of investigating, of looking into more research, and some of these institutes, you know, the WHO, the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control, particularly the former. The populist governments around the world, I think, particularly that of the U.S. government, have kind of questioned the legitimacy of some of these organizations, you know, and and what they kind of do. In your view, where does the role of these global institutions fit into these mitigation plans of what we might kind of tie together, you know, in that post-COVID-19 world?
2: I mean, obviously, those institutions sit more on the technocratic end of solutions. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But those are the solutions for the short to medium term future. Okay. okay. OK. And if anything, this pandemic has really shown that we need to strengthen the institutions. Both the WHO and ECDC are dependent on buy-in of their member states. They are not national institutes that have a direct mandate. In a globally connected world we do need these global solutions and that includes things like epidemic intelligence and response mechanisms because the moment you have a large-scale problem that crosses borders no country alone is capable of responding to these mechanisms some countries have amazing technological abilities but it still needs that coordination and what is very easy to overlook i think especially at the moment where everyone is kind of looking to WHO, where suddenly names like Mike Ryan or Maria van Kerkhoff have become household names, is that what we're looking at is only one of the many faces and functions of these organizations. Mm -hmm. What we see on TV or in the news is really just this public-facing science communication and health diplomacy side, but the, the apparatus that is behind that is much, much larger and does a lot more than is necessarily easily seen sort of from what we see every day.
0: Mm -hmm. I want to switch directions a little bit and talk about kind of the vaccine rollout. You had mentioned a little bit about that vaccine nationalism, and that's certainly the case right now. You know, we have these We have the kind of the vaccine rollout underway in a lot of countries. It's a lot slower than anticipated in the developed countries, and it's uneven in its distribution, particularly in developing countries. I think it was the WHO that called it a moral failure of how we're distributing the vaccine to developing countries. I mean, it might still be too early to predict this, but in your view, what lessons might we learn from COVID-19 and how we roll out just vaccinations in general for these countries?
2: We have seen a lot of problems with the vaccine rollout and we've seen them very publicly, Mm -hmm. things that might not in normal situations be as public. However, it's, I think, really important that we keep in mind that we managed to develop not one, but several vaccines in less than a year. And now we obviously have a task that we've never at this scale seen before. We have to vaccinate the entire world, which is a huge logistic task. I mean, we have had mass vaccination campaigns and disease elimination campaigns in the past. But not against the backdrop of a pandemic where we need to vaccinate very quickly. And we've also, to a little bit, allowed ourselves to become paralyzed by some seemingly insurmountable challenges. Let's take, for example, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and the issue with ultra-cold storage. So that's ultra-cold storage means a freezer of minus 70 to minus 80 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of freezer that is not necessarily found in your average GP's office or in a warehouse. But what is really important to remember here is that the Ebola vaccine also requires ultra cold chain. And we were able to deliver very successful vaccination campaigns with this vaccine in some of the most unstable regions of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Mm -hmm. Again, completely different scale, but it is far from impossible with a lot less ability and a lot less resources than we have in high income countries. But the other thing is that we really, at the moment, cannot afford to play this blame game, which seems to be going on to a certain degree. Rather than trying to determine who did what wrong when in the process of ordering vaccines or setting up logistics, we need everyone to work together. And that includes issues in high income countries where we've seen issues with, as we call it, getting vaccines into arms in the US, as well as ordering doses in the EU. But it's, it's really that vaccine equity issue that has me more worried, because at the end of the day, the low- and middle-income countries really are ending up on the receiving end of the repercussions of vaccine nationalism. And we have seen some good measures for that and mechanisms, such as COVAX, which has at least on paper been a really good effort for global vaccine equity, but obviously, if we don't strive for that equity again and again, and obviously that is difficult because everyone wants to get vaccinated now and that is very understandable, we will all suffer. But I think, again, trying not to be too doom and gloom. At the same time, we've also, in the last couple of weeks, seen the rollout of another vaccine facility that was highly successful. I mean, we now have the first global deployment-ready stockpile of Ebola vaccines, led by WHO, UNICEF, Red Cross, and Doctors Without Borders. Because coming back to that, because we really need to remember, COVID isn't really the only biological problem around, even right now.
0: Mm -hmm. You provided some great context for how we should be thinking about this rollout. And you mentioned something at the the beginning in terms of just the speed in which vaccines and the number of vaccines have been developed and the kind of the scientific breakthrough of that. And I kind of just want to keep on this topic just a little bit more in terms of this aspect of rollout, this aspect of creating vaccines and the efficiency in which it's been developed on that front, and kind of keep it in the context of that next pandemic. So what aspects or what sort of traits or factors might you see as part of that next pandemic that we're talking about? What sort of factors would be included in that discussion because of this COVID-19 pandemic? I
2: think this pandemic has really shown us in terms of scientific development what is possible. I think a year ago, I would not have said, oh yeah, we will have a vaccine by the end of 2020. That seemed rather ambitious. We've had not one but multiple. So in that regard, it's really shown us what is possible if we speed up processes. And really important to to maintain here, we did not sacrifice safety. We sacrificed to a certain degree, financial safety. And the moment that finances are not the driving force anymore. There's a lot of room for improvement and speed up of this discovery. I think that is one of the things to kind of keep in mind for the next big epidemic or pandemic. The other thing that will definitely stay with us is the development of these new vaccine technologies, mainly mRNA, but also the the vector-borne vaccines like the one by uh, Oxford University and AstraZeneca. So those will be things that we will be able to draw on the next time, because in a way, this is almost for the next time, like a proof of concept situation here. Then we've seen how global coordination can work with COVAX and with the role that GAVI, the Global Alliance for Vaccine Innovation, has been able to play. So there's a lot of things that we can learn from. And on the other side, if we take the the vaccine nationalism, we can also learn from that as as a negative example. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Dr. Hammer, this has been a very insightful conversation in terms of where this next pandemic kind of sits. Do you have any concluding thoughts on that next pandemic and kind of after immunization to COVID-19 and anything that you think the listeners should know about in terms of that next pandemic?
2: I think it's really absolutely important that we remain vigilant for the next epidemic and pandemics. Now, obviously, we always remember retrospectively, that's human nature. So we're always more likely to prepare for a repeat of the past than for the actual future. But the next pandemic might not look like this one. So we need to make sure that our preparedness plans are flexible and adaptable. And one early key lesson for many high income countries will have to be not to relax because we feel prepared. I mean, we've we've seen how it developed with the US and the UK. Those two countries ranked the highest on the global health security index, which was exactly about pandemic preparedness to a degree. And sort of as a final more technical point, I think the emergence of the new variants in the UK, in South Africa, and now in Brazil hopefully has to a certain degree driven home the, the need for more sequencing and more genomic surveillance.
0: Mm-hmm. Dr. Hamrit, we really appreciate your time being able to talk to us about this next pandemic. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Today, we have learned about the next pandemic. Obviously, no one can predict the future with certainty, but we do know that there will be another pandemic and it will be within our lifetime. There are also a few predictors and risks for the next pandemic, like land use encroachment and excessive population density that may lead to, as Dr. Hammer put it, the perfect storm for the next pandemic. Some of these factors are intrinsically linked to our pursuits against climate change and social inequities. In some ways, this worldwide crisis generated by a virus is a dress rehearsal for addressing global climate change. Further, both our guests stated that this pandemic has shown us what science and ingenuity can do in a crisis to save the day. Over the last few weeks, we have explored several aspects of what our post-COVID-19 world could be. Inequality, the local arts scene, mental health, the urban environment, and now, the next pandemic. While these topics were diverse, there were a few underlying commonalities across the board. The most overarching in my view that came up again today was, what sort of society do we want and need to be? Do we want a society of unequal opportunity based on geography, gender, race, or income? Do we want a flourishing creative arts scene that inspires and brings together communities? Do we want a resilient society where we are more aware of our own mental health and the mental health needs of others? Do we want an urban environment that evolves to fit the needs of both individuals and business? And finally now, do we want to be ready for our next big challenge? The next pandemic, climate change? As this series comes to an end, and as we enter that post-COVID-19 world, keep that question in the back of your mind. We may be naturally drawn to returning to how things were before this pandemic. Those drinks on the patio, the return to the office, our old habits, as we attempt to perhaps forget this awful time. I'm not saying we shouldn't return to a more functioning society, but we also mustn't forget about this period, no matter how painful it may have been. We learn more from our losses than our victories. When the next pandemic hits, we shouldn't have to start from scratch like we did with COVID-19. We possess the ingenuity and resilience to improve and do better next time, so long as we are proactive, engaged, and critical of how we are doing. We can win the next match, both individually and collectively. Thank you for listening to After Immunity. This is the last episode of our series, so there's a few thanks that are in order. Firstly, thank you to Dr. Detsky and Dr. Hammer for coming on today's episode, as well as a collective thank you to all of those who took the time to speak to me these past months about our post-COVID future. A big thanks to Jared McKidiak at UMFM 101.5 for all the support in helping getting this series up and running on a weekly basis. Thanks to Neil Kramer, Theo Bloomrick, Lindsay Naden, Jonah Kotzer, as well as Glenn and Janine for helping out with select episodes in the series. Your support and perspectives in this project have been valuable. Lastly, a thanks to you, the listener, for tuning into the program over these last few weeks. I sincerely hope you got something out of the series and the perspective shared. I know I have. Host and executive producer is myself, Ian T.D. Thompson. Associate Producers are Neil Kramer and Jonah Kotzer. After Immunity is a UMFM 101.5 limited series broadcasted out of the University of Manitoba. For more information on the series, visit UMFM.com. If you have any thoughts or comments on the series or anything you heard on today's episode, email us at after.immunity at UMFM.com.